Welcome to episode 23 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. Brian wants to kick us off with some life science news. Brian? Thanks, Tucker. This is real riveting news. This is our spooky episode, so let's get spooky. Um, so we've been doing some analysis here in Boston on the life science market and uh, for a number of reasons with, with clients and uh, for some for some strategic reasons as an office. And uh, a couple quick stats. There's there's roughly 15 million square feet of life science space under construction in Greater Boston. Nine million of it, or or um, effectively a third of it, is pre-leased. So two thirds of that space is is vacant. It's going to deliver vacant, no tenants. Demand went from a peak of four to five million of real demand, but was in the marketplace talking about a 7 million square foot of demand in the market down to one to 2 million square feet of demand. And some of it is, it's hard to tell if it's even real. Um, where there's two and a half million square feet of subleases on the market over 90 locations. Two years ago, there was effectively zero, maybe a, a couple. Um, the asking rents for this space have effectively been unchanged. Subleases are being priced effectively at par with direct spaces. Direct spaces, you're not seeing any material movement in the asking rents. And truthfully, the deals that I'm hearing from other brokerage shops are getting done at the same rents that they were two years ago. Um, so it's, it's just a, the, the, the supply and demand story should tell you that there should be real good opportunities in the marketplace, but we're just not seeing it yet. Um, and I think there's a conflux of factors that are causing this. I think a big piece of it is the brokerage community and the landlords kind of being able to hold on and wait. Uh, but it's a difficult time and difficult conversations with clients because there's a lot of, of negative press in the marketplace and there's a lot of real supply issues for owners, but the value isn't coming through in, um, you know, in where we can do deals today. So I wanted to just um, talk about it and see what you, you all thoughts were. But um, I think there's no better time in the marketplace to be a tenant. I think patience, unfortunately, which is difficult for a lot of life science companies, is important because I think there needs to be a reset. And I think one or two owners who start to chase um you know, chase demand and chase the market will likely kind of erupt the overall market. But as it stands today, it's a frustrating time because the fundamentals aren't proving out. So here we go again. I'm going to continue to try and um, drive this phrase into the existence, this pre-capitulation phase where like it's coming, the, the, the turn in the market is coming, but it takes time. And in the interim, these landlords... I don't blame them, but this strategy of pretend and pray, pretend this isn't happening and pray your tenant doesn't get a good broker on their side. You know, you think about the dynamics in a lease renewal, which are already some of the more interesting and challenging projects where the way I typically say it, nine times out of 10, the tenant doesn't want to move and 10 times out of 10, the landlord knows this. So, you know, they, they're captive and the negotiations are, are different as a result. So man, but a good broker can undo that. A good broker can introduce some uncertainty and show the tenant their real options, tell them what's actually happening in the market. 
But man, if some of these tenants are using the landlord's brokers and we're surprised, these tenants are signing leases at non-discounted rates, just a radical missed opportunity. When when more than now is it important to have a broker who's going to tell you the truth uh, representing in these transactions? Crazy. I think one of the most interesting things about the situation in Boston with life sciences and, you know, Brian referencing that, you know, rents haven't come down meaningfully and certainly not as much as they should have is that when you think about the dynamics of the life science companies that are signing these leases at uh, non-discounted rents, as you've said, John, these are usually companies that are burning, you know, millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars you know, a month or a quarter or a year, depending on their size and investment in R&D and where they are and, you know, FDA approvals and clinical trials and all that. And you start thinking about the cost of overpaying on real estate for these companies relative to their payroll expense. And it's probably a, a significantly smaller percentage of their overall spend. So you have on, on one hand, you have this like landlord base or sub landlord base that is almost price fixing the market. And then on the other side, you have this very price insensitive, and I use that kind of broadly, like price insensitive, recognizing that they have meaningful burn on all of their other expenses, no matter what, and that they can't physically deliver their product to a approved state without the space. So of course, like you think about who's going to capitulate first. And of course, for, for at least now, it's going to be these life science tenants. I think what's, what's changed is that people are making smaller commitments. They're taking longer to make these commitments. They're being more prudent when they enter into them. Um, but I agree. I mean, it's only a matter of time until the people that are leasing space down the line are going to get to a point where they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's going to be the you know final straw that I think breaks the back of these pre-capitulation landlords that are price fi- fixing and not having to capitulate for now. Yeah, the, the uh, I agree with you, Tucker. That's that's it. The the piece that's, you know, even more challenging for owners that they look at is most of the companies that are out leasing space need it. They're all kind of, you know, 10 to 25,000 feet or five to 20,000 feet. A lot of the space that's come on the market is larger. It's 25,000 feet and up. Um, now that's on, that's, that's one issue, right? The second issue is all this new development that's being delivered is being delivered in shell and companies don't have the time between needing the space and needing to making their runs and do or doing their, their um, science. They don't have the time to wait for it to be built. So in a more, um, in a more equal market, developers will start to spec space out. They will bring infrastructure in. They will try to get that timeline between delivering shell space and delivering fully built, ready to occupy space shortened because these companies don't want to wait. They, and they don't have the time to wait. They either get funding or they get through a certain stage of their process and trials and they need that next phase. Um, so there's going to be a lot of space that's coming to market where developers don't want to spend the money and get them closer to occupancy and tenants don't want to wait and they have options not to wait. So there's even a further divide between what the user base needs and what the development community is willing to put out there, which to me means that there should be a further discount. What we are seeing, I would say, is developers providing more TI. So concessions are going up, but they're still trying to hold rents. In my mind, all of the whole package of, of the financial position of an owner needs to come down. And maybe some of these owners need to lose buildings 
They need to be turned back to lenders. They need to be new owners put in place. And I think all of that will come uh, in time as this massive amount of overbuilding matures and comes online. But the um, the struggle right now is that it's not there yet. And companies are, are looking around saying, well, what can we do, right? I might take that to segue into something I wanted to bring up and sort of ask the group to respond. Um, because the same thing's happening in office space um, with a slightly different approach, what I will describe is this flight to quality dynamic where some of the nicest buildings are holding on to the highest rents, haven't had to capitulate, haven't had to respond to the market dynamic that's happening today. Um, so, but my point is, I don't think that's sustainable. I don't think that's going to, it's not, they're not immune to what's happening in the marketplace. And, I, and here's why, let me introduce a new term, um, the quality premium spread, like these quality properties, the top tier properties command a premium. That's great. But over time, when the second tier, I'm not talking third, fourth, you know, the real junk assets that need to be converted or demolished. But um, I know you didn't want to talk about WeWork, but here's an incredible building in San Francisco, 340 Bryant Street, 32,000 feet. It was valued at $52 million, $830 a foot a couple of years ago. Um, but WeWork signed a lease for the whole thing. And WeWork stopped paying rent and they're handing the keys back to a special servicer. So it was just reappraised it. $8.2 million, $131 a foot. That's an 84% drop in value. Okay, so here's a beautiful, call it second tier building that's now going to compete on price where San Francisco rents maybe topped out at $80, $90, annual rent per square foot. And here's a group that can sh show really high quality space at like 30 bucks, 35 bucks a foot. So as that quality premium spread grows, I believe it will put downward pressure on rents, even from the top tier, even from the nicest buildings. An old concept from economics, you know, windfall, uh, market forces will quash windfall profits. And I think that's what we're going to see happen as that quality premium spread increases. What do you think? I think market forces will, will impact profits, losses, whatever. I mean, windfall profits, if you're buying the building at a hundred bucks a foot and you're doing $35 deals, that's not any that spread is still the same as buying the building at 800 bucks a foot and doing whatever $80 deals, <laughs> uh, $90 deals, right? It's, it's, but know, I'm talking the about the spread from the pricing for the top tier buildings that were getting 80, 90, hundred dollars a foot. Now you have like almost as good a building that'll deliver at 35. I'm, I'm talking about the spread between a hundred dollar rents and $35 rents. That gets to a point where the tenants are going to have to take notice and, uh, those premium rents are going to have to respond says me. It is interesting to think about, right? Because uh, in my experience, most of the companies that I work with, and and granted, there's there's obviously major exceptions to this, and I have a, you know, um, sort of limited sample size in the context that it's not small, but it's also not statistically significant of a sample size. But I think most people are are more focused on meeting some minimum threshold for quality in a space and then getting the best deal on whatever space exists within that uh, like quality threshold that they need. And if something's like a class A++ building and something is a A building and they both are workable, then they start caring. But fundamentally, I think such a large majority of the space that is going to be vacant or is already vacant uh, just won't compete with class A product under any scenario. So I, I agree in concept that this, um, this, you know, quality spread does matter and it definitely puts downward pressure on 
on rents across the spectrum. But I don't I, I don't know that I would make that bet that um, the the widening um, spread between you know Class A and Class B or Class C properties is really going to move down pricing and trophy buildings that dramatically. Uh, I just think the percentage of the tenant base in class A plus buildings that are willing to leave at really any price to go to another building is pretty small. Well, John, let me just, not to to, um, disagree, just to disagree, but I feel differently about this in that here's what's happening across most cities in the United States. You've got three tiers of asset classes. You've got your trophy buildings, which you're referring to. You have your nice buildings who have been decimated with lack of tenancy uh, to no fault of their own in some cases, like the WeWork debacle. And then you have the buildings that are you know, due for a wrecking ball or conversions or whatever. So let's just take a look at the first two sets, the trophy and the almost trophy buildings, let's call it that. You're suggesting there's a di- dichotomy between the two, and I would suggest that actually that's not, that alone is what's driving the non-trophy buildings to reinvest. And knowing that there will be a flight to quality, that's only natural. You know, when you can buy, you know, a class A building for what was once the price of a class B building, why wouldn't you upgrade if you can? But what we're seeing is that those buildings that have belief that they can survive and they can be a building that will be sought after, subject to a massive renovation, that's occurring. I know, empirically speaking, I've toured them, where a lot of buildings that have been categorized over the past decade as a class A commodity building in light of all the new construction are now starting to go through sometimes 20, 30, 40, 50, as much as $100 million renovations. That includes all new lobbies, all new common areas, all new bathrooms on every floor. I mean, you name it, everything gets retouched except for the facade. And in some cases, the outdoor courtyards are even getting upgraded. And so to Tucker's point, when a class A commodity building that doesn't trade in that trophy asset class today goes through an $80 million renovation, if the tenant's just trying to find really nice space, but not trophy space. We're not talking top of a building, you know, that with $400 tenant improvement build out, but nice enough that it's, it warrants people wanting to be back in the office versus being at home. I would suggest it's the notion that rising tide lifts all ships and you're going to see those buildings that otherwise would trade at discounts say, Hey, you know, we, 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 we're long on the office market. Um, we're going to reinvest and hope that we can capture some of this, um, demand that's out there. Um, being priced just slightly below the, the trophy buildings. Not so much so that it's a fire sale, but enough that people look at it and go, okay, for you know, 10% savings over the next 10 years or 15% savings, I get a really nice building that's been completely remodeled. Um, and then it's up to me as to what I do within my four walls. Because you can make the space spectacular in the dumpiest building in the city, comp- compete with a building, a, ten- a space in the most expensive building in the city, Granted, the experience of arriving to it from the office is different, but once you're within the four walls, it's up to you. We've talked about this on previous pods before, just that it's naive to think that all these buildings that have like, quote unquote, functionally obsolete or space that isn't very desirable are just going to go, gosh, what a bummer. My building's now worthless. I guess I just have to accept this and write my investment down to zero, right? People don't act like that. The question that they're asking is, how can I reposition my building so I'm able to get rent paying tenants in here as fast as possible with, you know, a reasonable investment in the building. And the scenario that Owen's talking about where you have these, you know, class B plus class A minus owners that are trying to compete in that upper echelon of quality so they can attract those, you know, companies that are still in offices that are willing to pay premium rents, 
because they've recognized that it's important for their team to come in. I, I do think as the, uh, the, the inventory and square footage of available class A plus office space, like those trophy assets that we're talking about, as that supply increases, that will inevitably put downward pressure on price. What I don't think will happen is that those buildings that are um, not willing to spend the money, not willing to make the investment are suddenly going to uh, be able to compete on price with a class A plus building. I, I think, of course, there will be the occasional tenant that goes, oh, wow, look at how much money we can save. But I think for the most part, it's going to be, uh, hey, this just isn't nice enough. We're going to lose too many people coming to the office. We can't do it. I mean, certainly it's not a good thing for pricing pressure on 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 trophy assets. There's no disputing that. Um, I just think I see it slightly differently than John does, where the downward pressure that it's going to to put on it, I think, is smaller. But who knows? This stuff's really hard to predict. And I mean, John, if you end up being right, I I, I would not be surprised because it's rare that you have a bad take um, and not that it's a bad take. Right. But just that I think I see it slightly differently. I'm very curious how it plays out. Don't hedge your opinion, Tucker. Take a stand and <laughs> hold hold on. And here's the thing. I'm going to say that and then I'm going to I'm going to pick the middle ground. I think statistically speaking, and this isn't really my opinion, but statistically speaking, John's going to be right. And it's because there's many buildings in in various cities around the country that are deemed trophy that shouldn't be. I don't think I think if you could have the nicest building in LA right now, the nicest, it could be 10 times nicer than the next building. And it could be in the wrong location and you come outside and there's, there's a challenging sidewalk in front of you. And it doesn't matter what you charge in that building, but that building's still a trophy asset and no one's going to want to go there. And, and as I take the perspective of my clients, as we were doing work in a number of cities, and this is internationally and domestically, the first question they have is, where do we want to be? Where do we want to be to attract the people to have the amenities that we want? They, they first, the flight to quality isn't to the asset first. It's to the neighborhood first. They want to be where their friends are. They want to be where their employees are, their future employees, where it's easier to commute from whatever it is. Then it's to the building. And if you have the nicest building in a market, A plus, brand new, and you're in the wrong location, I don't think there's that. I don't think you're going to see the flight to quality to that building that you would see into a building that's a lesser quality in the right location. Now, that lesser quality doesn't mean it's a B building or it's an A minus building. You need to be, uh, you still need to be chasing that, that highest quality asset. But, um, I think location at a micro level is, is the most important factor right now companies are looking at. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it it warrants talking about what does a trophy asset even mean in today's environment, right? What I just said, you know, now a minute or a minute and a half ago, whatever that was, around how these buildings are going to perform. In the context of that conversation, I'm using a trophy asset as like the most desirable buildings that quality tenants want to locate in today. Not the historic definition of, hey, um, U.S. Bank Tower in downtown L.A., right? Like, just did an insane renovation. The building itself is very nice. Can probably considered Class A+. Or, you know, you look at the, you know, Korean Airlines building in downtown L.A. It's the newest construction building. But people don't want to go lease of, you know, full floor of space downtown right now. I mean, it's one of the hardest hit markets in Los Angeles. So I more mean the buildings that are 
the buildings that have already seen the flight to quality, right? Um, so just to clarify my position, uh, I, I agree with, with Brian. I think that these, uh, you know, definitional like trophy asset buildings from the sort of stereotypical trophy asset definition in commercial real estate, if they're in a bad location are going to perform really, really badly. Um, I'm, I'm more meant in the context of this conversation, the buildings that are performing extremely well, those are the new era trophy assets. The ones that are really nice, attract tenants in this environment and are located in the right spot. And just to be clear, what I'm describing, I believe is a true economic theory across all domains. Like there's a limit to how much you can charge for a really good hamburger, right? Because you can try and charge me a hundred bucks for a burger and it's probably an amazing hamburger, but like there's this other place that is really, really good. It's like 15 bucks. So there's this quality premium spread. There are going to be some people who want the very finest and they will pay any price. I will say that that's not the majority. And for most folks, if there's a difference between the premium and almost as nice as that price gap spreads, I think it puts downward pressure on what that premium um, commodity, that premium item can charge. My but there, there's also yeah. this, this other piece though of that assumes that the pricing is going to be completely unreasonable. And I, I don't know that it will, right? Like I, I think if you use the metaphor of, Hey, you can buy a, a Mercedes for $80,000 or you can buy a Honda for, you know, $40,000. And all of a sudden Mercedes raises its price to $200,000 per car. Of course, people are going to be willing to accept something that maybe they'd prefer not, but the, the gap is so wide. I just think that if you change that example to, Hey, a price of a car is a hundred thousand dollars and a price of a bicycles, you know, a few hundred dollars, nobody's going to be like, Oh, okay, well, I'm now going to do my 50 mile commute to work on a bicycle. Right. So I think it really depends what the institutional view of that company is. I know that there's so many companies that are just going to say, it's not worth having office space, period, at all, if we can't get people to come in and our team won't come in. I mean, if you're a uh, like really uh, you know, well sought after and desirable uh, company in the tech space trying to compete for top talent, you're better off probably not having offices than being in one of these not nice buildings. So I think it, it really just, it, this is very specific, right? You have to be above that minimum threshold. And as the supply of the buildings above the threshold increase, of course, that's going to bring, bring pricing uh, power down for that, you know, segment of the market. But it just begs the question of how much supply is actually going to be able to be delivered into this segment where companies will consider it on a relatively equal playing field where it's, uh, you know, two cars that are workable versus a car and a bicycle. You keep bringing that car analogy and all I can think about is Dumb and Dumber when they traded the van <laughs> to the scooter. Well, this, this is a good segue. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take over the mic here for um, my news article today. You know, we're talking about, we just went on five minute tear on building quality and location and so forth. Let's take a step back. Okay. Let's think about less a building or a, or an intersection in the city. Let's think about a market. So, um, there's an article today in the wall street journal about Minneapolis. Okay. And they describe this downtown and this is going to sound fanciful for many of our listeners here. And don't close your eyes if you're listening to this in the car, of course, but just, just for a second, imagine a downtown that was so crowded. Like they talk about Minneapolis in the 1960s that developers and, and I, 
seen this in person, but I never realized the enormity of this. Developers conjured up this maze of elevated walkways between buildings, okay? Because Minneapolis is cold in the winter, lots of snow, it's, it's nasty. And it was to, to enhance that nine to five Monday through Friday environment. The stores were packed, fast food places were packed, bakeries, barbershops, coffee shops, you name it, all based on these temperature controlled walkways between these glass skyscrapers downtown as Minneapolis uh, grew. That Minneapolis Skyway system, guys and listeners, is the largest contiguous system of enclosed second-level bridges in the world. Get this, and I didn't know this. This is news to me. It's nine and a half miles worth of pathways connecting 80 city blocks. So think about that. So I was like, okay, so Minneapolis clearly was designed to serve a nine-to-five economy, all right? It was there for the office workers and everyone that came down. And then in the 60s, all the people that came into town to shop, think of Woolworths. Most of our listeners probably don't even know what a Woolworths is, but it was an old department store that went defunct. Um, I actually, should I dare say, I had the pleasure of going into one when I was a small child and had a soda at the soda fountain. I'm not that old. Um, I'm in my 40s. But um, these now, these cities that were designed for this 9 to 5 environment are riddled with a tremendous amount of vacancies, which we all know. Okay, And they're hoping, hoping to survive this remote era work um, environment that we're out, we're now in without having to bulldoze half the town. And so you look at this article talked about, you know, well, what's the future for these cities? You know, because some have reinvested in, in that, let's, uh, you know, let's say 5 to 8, 5 p.m. to 8 a.m. economy versus just the 9 to 5. And those are more vibrant than others that are, uh, you know, shuttered with just nine to five workers that aren't going into the office anymore. But even the experts, and I, I say experts, those in academia, um, say that it's going to take years and billions of dollars to kind of re- to change these downtowns. And they were picking on Minneapolis as one that desperately needs help. And you know, there's, a, there's a stat in this article today that the University of Toronto's School of Cities said that um, foot traffic downtown um, across you know, North America and the major cities has dropped 26%. Uh, on average, and some cities are, are more than others, but we're kind of on a downward spiral because as these buildings all of a sudden go away, if they do, it lowers tax revenue as well. Um, and there's this notion that, okay, let's reinvent these. How do we reinvent these cities and what's the future? And everyone early in the pandemic was screaming, oh, office conversions, office conversions to apartments. Well, they did this study, and I won't go into great detail, but what was, what was fascinating is that most of these buildings, and in this case, they were, again, they were picking on Minneapolis, that are due for conversions um, are still largely leased. Like we're talking 80, in some cases, 90% leased. So in order for that office building that is a candidate for office conversion to apartments, not only does it have to you know, be largely vacant or someone's got to write a massive check to get all the tenants out, but then on top of that, it also has to be sold at a massive discount. So some developer c- can come in and convert a once- office building to apartments, which you can only imagine all the mechanical and plumbing and um, all the other work that has to be done that raises costs. So this is a long, long-term problem that we will solve. I think we'll get through it, but I bring this, I'm going to come full circle on this. We're talking about trophy assets and quality and where people want to be. I think you've got to take a step back. So if you're a company that's wanting to have a place where people want to come to work, what we were talking about previously, that's like, that's, that's step two or three. Step one is determining where is that city that wasn't built on a 95 economy that has in recent years, even pre-pandemic, has invested into multifamily and other sorts of things that allow it to have a vibrant downtown. 
And as we've seen through the pandemic, there's many cities that have not, and that's why they're mostly vacant. And that sense of desolation, guys and listeners, is what discourages many of my clients from wanting to have people show up at the office. And that's what we got to change. That's a great point. I think for our listeners that may not have had the pleasure of being in Minneapolis, if you've been to New York City, um, I would view the downtown Minneapolis is... It's like going to downtown, say, in, in New York City, right? So down by the World Trade Center. It's just large office buildings. It's got no vibe. It's pretty dead after work. It's just, you know, it's like huge city blocks of just rolling tumbleweeds of nothing. And then you get up into the skyway, it gets a little better. I mean, my first experience, I remember I was walking along and I, I'm like, it's really early in the morning before any retail opens. And I end up walking through a Macy's. And I'm like, am I allowed to do this? Because all they have is like those velvet, those felt ropes, um, like blocking the product from where you're walking. And that's how they connect some of the, some of the skyways together. I'm like, thank God that there's cameras or whatever. But, um, because you just can think of the theft. And I wonder what happened in, you know, in today's environment when no one's around because there was a lot of people and, and it was just all kind of worked. But, you know, like Minneapolis has a real problem. When I was doing work there, if you go into the North Loop, it's it, it's like being on another planet first downtown. Like it literally is a different world. It's where people live. It's where people work. It's where people work out. Where they go to restaurants. It's where they go to ball games. It's where their friends live. It's like being in another planet. And now they're going to try to take that vibe and that ecosystem and recreate it down downtown. Right? In my mind. That's 50 years of work, right? It doesn't happen because you have tons of leases. You have, we have buildings that weren't built for that, at least in the, the, the North Loop and, and in Midtown South and in, in, in Manhattan, you've got buildings that are, that weren't these huge skyscrapers built for one single purpose. These buildings were previously, you know, mills or, or factories or something or apartments at one point and then they turned them into, into office. Now they're turning them back into something else. But the downtowns of these cities are, they're, you know, they're one trick ponies and Boston has the same problem. I'm sure LA and, and Seattle have the same problems as well. And the, the challenge isn't going to be that there's great ideas. It's to make it on scale where you could start to get people to use it as preference over the nicer neighborhoods that still have a lot of office space available that still have the apartments and everything that's like, why suffer? And be the first or building or person or company when you can go to where everyone else wants to be anyway. It's going to be a real challenge. Let me chime in about the habit trail in Minneapolis. I don't know how many of you had hamsters growing up, but that's all I can think of when I think of those tubes connecting all the buildings. Um, I'll just say briefly that I think we've talked about this before on the pod, but it's this idea that there is a shift in sort of civic design and planning. And those cities that have a downtown urban core that's just office space are the most at risk because this move to sort of mixed use, um, you know, I'm sitting here in little Italy in San Diego. I think it's a good example of mixed use, a lot of apartments, a lot of jobs, you know, farmers markets on the weekends, and it's got a pretty cool vibe. But these cities that only had office downtown could get away with it, sort of pre-hybrid work because People needed jobs and the job was there and the expectation and requirement was that you come into that job every day, five days a week. And that's just not the new reality. There's some form of hybrid that is going to take hold 
um, across most companies. And the solution, I believe, is what you describe in that North Loop, where live, work, play, work out. Um, you know, this idea that we can have an urban center where all the jobs are and everyone lives somewhere else is an antiquated model, I believe. Yeah, and I, I would tell you this to, to play, you know, to, to play doomsday here. Uh, and I don't know if people want to hear this, but it's going to get worse. And it's going to get a lot worse as these leases in these downtown buildings roll and companies make decisions to move. Make the part we were talking about earlier, this flight to quality, the piece that, that we didn't touch on is companies can pay more because they're taking way less space and for by and far, right? So they're going to go, they're going to go to a nicer building in a nicer submarket. Because they don't need as much space. Because even under a hybrid model, if they're getting employees in three days a week, employees are willing, and, and this is most companies, right? Some some aren't. They're willing to have sacrifices in personal space and you know me space versus we space. And I think these downtowns are going to get a lot worse before they get better. And I think if you know if you're a developer sitting there looking at a building that's eighty and ninety percent leased today, and you're having these conversations and talking about it, and I can't do anything because my buildings are leased. Well, wait a few years and because their tenants are not coming in to fill a 50,000 foot floor plate on the low rise of some mid block building. It's just not going to happen. And then we're going to have real conversations about these downtowns. Right now, no one really cares that much because by and large, most of the buildings are still cash flowing. So if you, if you don't mind, I can segue in, and uh, maybe this is a nice place to wrap up, but I, I was going to bring you back to this um, pre-capitulation phase uh, because I've got an article here where, broadly speaking, some folks are starting to talk about pessimistic about quick market recovery. Okay, so here we go. NAIOP, National Association of Industrial and Office Parks, sort of a large landlord association, had their annual event, CRE Converge, up there in Seattle uh, by you, Owen. And uh, this is a report from CoStar two days ago. And it says, real estate professionals pessimistic about quick market recovery. The mood was grim in recent days at one of the nation's largest real estate industry conferences, with many attendees expecting property markets to remain stagnant into at least 2025. Okay, so the current chair of NAIOP, Kim Snyder, um, is with Prologis. I mean, Prologis, industrial landlord, a space that hasn't been really hard hit yet, um, said uh, there's the threat of recession and a demand pullback in many of our sectors. Now with the war in Ukraine and the war in Israel, it leaves us quite sober and frankly, very pensive about what things are going to look like down the road. Uh, there were 1,400 people that attended the event and goes on to say the chatter among attendees centered around reduced expectations for a quick recovery, a lack of lease renewals and delayed construction starts. So that's starting to sound like a form of capitulation, uh, acknowledgement, um, that we're coming into some hard times and rents are probably going to be going down before they go up. There's been so much interesting news that has come out uh, similar to the NAOP uh, feedback from different members that spoke there or just the general, you know, feedback from people that attended the event as far as sentiment and, you know, the conversations that people have, you know, walking around the event. Um, in addition to that, over the last couple of weeks, you've had Blackstone, SL Green, you know, Prologis, as you said, so many of these major uh, landlords report earnings. And one of the things that I found really interesting is, uh, and we've talked about Blackstone on a few different occasions, but world's largest private equity firm, one of the largest owners of real estate in the world, uh, 
their investment, the real estate investment portfolio is focused almost exclusively on industrial student housing and data centers. So if you were to think, you know, a year ago or a few years ago, you know, what were the best product types to invest in? You would be hard pressed to find something that has, uh, you know, better tailwinds from a um, kind of where is, where's the future of work going and, you know, what sectors have performed well uh, than those three asset classes. But the firm wide revenue for Blackstone, which is a, you know, trillion dollars in assets, right? Firm wide revenue was down 12%. And it's credited primarily due to the lagging performance of real estate. Uh, most of these funds that you invest in, um, in private equity, when they're, you know, buying large companies, they have different fee schedule than when they're buying real estate. But when you look at most of, um, of Blackstone's real estate funds, they're driven by, uh, you know, carried interest above a certain threshold of returns and the realized performance revenue for Blackstone's uh, real estate fund dropped by 88%, right? And you start thinking about how these performance fees work and, uh, you know, they vary, you know, fund to fund, asset to asset and all that. But if you even have a 20 or 30% drop in performance and just for perspective, real estate distributions are down 27% right now. So that'd be like the monthly quarterly dividend that you're expected to receive as a shareholder. Even if you drop 27, 30%, just given the inherent operating leverage that exists in most real estate funds in the form of, you know, debt and, you know, corporate costs and all that, you can have a, you know, 20, 30% swing in distributions, but that could be in this case, an 88% swing in the actual performance of, um, you know, Blackstone being able to collect fees. That's probably not a hundred percent accurate in terms of describing the relationship between distributions falling, because of course that doesn't factor in building sales and things like that. But it gives you a sense of just how much, um, you know, the drop in performance of those asset classes has impacted the largest asset manager or private equity firm in the world's performance and ability to generate returns for shareholders. One of the other things that I found so interesting is that. You had the CEO of Blackstone uh, come out and say that they've chosen to sell less buildings because the economy is less favorable, right? So that's just clear as day what's going on. Um, and then, and we've talked about this on the pod. There's so many different landlords that that are doing that. At the same time, you have other people like one of the attendees of NAOP is you know Stockbridge Capital, and they have a 650 million dollar fund, and they're just said like, hey, look. This is a value fund. We have a lot of dry powder. We're ready to invest, but we can't find deals that pencil very easily. So the bid ask spread on uh, buildings is still very wide. These landlords are in the pre-capitulation stage. As Brian said earlier, the vast majority of these landlords haven't had to renegotiate their debt. And until they have to renegotiate their debt, as John said earlier, they're in the, you know, pray that things get better stage. Um, I think one of the most interesting um, secondary pieces out of the NAOP event is that there was a um, a architecture group that is very prominent um, architecture and design firm doing uh, new construction industrial buildings that said they're continuing to sign a lot of new contracts for design projects, but all of the commencement dates of construction are getting dramatically pushed out. So you start thinking about that. And we, we talked about this right when we started the pod of for industrial specifically, you know, demand is, is coming down. We've talked about that a lot. Well, what happens if 
demand continues to be positive, but still way down from where it was at its peak. But all of the new supply is buffered or all of the new supply is delayed by a year or two years. And you have this air bubble in the pipeline of supply where nothing new is delivering. Could that drive another major price frenzy? Because that's exactly what happened at the start of COVID, right? I mean, of course, there were other factors like a huge switch of the U.S. economy to e-commerce, but a huge part of it was driven that there was just no supply. And there were other issues beyond, you know, people just being nervous to build. There were major, you know, building material supply chain issues too. But still, that was a major driver in the increased um, price of these warehouses at the start of the pandemic. I want to go back to something I said earlier, because in this whole episode, you know, there's a single message that's primary um, that I want to hit again. And it's this idea. So, yeah, we have landlords that are sort of pray and pretend, pray, pray, pretend and pray, pretend this isn't happening and pray that you can get through the renewal without your tenant getting smart on um, the crux, the the. the the thing that matters is the renewal. Like if you have a lease that's coming up, make sure you've got somebody smart, somebody without a conflict, somebody that's not aligned with a landlord to tell you the truth about what's happening in the market. Because there's going to be examples of folks who pull it off, landlords who, you know, take advantage of the fact that the tenant doesn't want to move and they hold their hold the line and they get away with it. But that's just not not market. Like the, the prices don't reset to market automatically. Somebody's got to advise. Somebody's got to, you know, make the tenant smart, develop some leverage, consider the alternatives. The release renewal moment has never been more important than it is now, I believe. Yeah. And just on that note, John, I I will say I've been doing this for 20 years now. And some of the transactions I've been most proud of, of my entire 20 year representing companies and doing thousands of leases have been renewals that I've done in 2023. I mean, if if my listeners that those I represented this year did a long term renewal, you know who you are. I'm not kidding you. The terms that we were able to negotiate were astounding, like something I've never seen before. And even it should say the same goes for some of new transactions. I mean, think about it. If you're a credit worthy tenant that wants to commit to a seven, 10 year term for an institutional owner, they bend over backwards and do backflips for you. Um, and so all this stuff we're talking about, right? We talk about the demise of downtowns and the recovery and, you know, the pessimism that many people have about downtowns. It creates opportunity. And so let's just bring this back full circle that while it might be doom and gloom, you know, for some of the owners out there, the opportunities for tenants is incredible. Is if you have line of sight, right, on your occupancy strategy. If you don't, then do something short term. But if you've got line of sight and you want to take advantage of the market, it's a remarkable time to be a tenant. Well said, Owen. There is, it's really an art to understand, is this a really good deal now? And will this be a really good deal two or three or four years from now? And I think that there are a lot of companies that maybe don't have great representation that see a deal and go, wow, this is really good. And it's actually a a bad deal. And they just don't have context to know. So um, that's, that's awesome that you're really proud of so many of these uh, you know, large renewal transactions that you've worked on this year. I think probably uh, all of us on the pod can say that, you know, the last 24 months from a environment to negotiate in has been uh, one of the most fun that we've ever experienced, being able to, you know, set new records, you know, push the market down, get our clients, you know, fair and reasonable deals that are incredibly aggressive that nobody would have thought possible if you had asked them in 2019 
And um, yeah, it's it's really fun, but it's important for companies to recognize that without a ton of context on the market, it's hard to know whether that uh, deal that's significantly less than you're paying now is is really actually a good deal. And maybe it should be 20, 30, 40% less than what you actually think it should be. When you say it's fun, we, we need to carry a little bit of empathy here. Th- these landlords are getting hammered. And so uh, when you say we push the market down, I would challenge you. I don't think we do push the market down. What we do is price discovery, um, unbiased, um, transparent price discovery and negotiations. And it's brutal for some of these landlords. So I think recognize that when, as we're doing this, um, yeah, it is fun to be able to you know throw your weight around and, and win on more of these concessions. Um, and this is when you know the tenant side sort of makes up a lot of ground. Um, but we're not pushing the market down, right? We're not drivers of doom. We're, we're just doing price discovery. And what we're finding is that the rents are way down and headed down. Sometimes I think, John, you say things just to fire me up because we've had a boring <laughs> podcast because I fundamentally disagree with every ounce of my being that we're not pushing the market down. No landlord is going to go up to us and say, hey, guys, you know what? I think you're paying too much. Honestly, th- I know the building next door is a little less. He- here you go. It- t- take. Honestly, here it is. Just here's here's no, a. But we're not pushing rate. it. We're not the driving force that's yes, causing we are. I to am. decline. Yes, I we am. are. Yes, I am we are the. In a lot of cases, we're the only force because we're 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 presenting and creating an environment to push landlords to do things that they're uncomfortable doing. In a lot of cases, eliminating their equity in the buildings because they keep they need occupancy to to maintain the asset. It's. We are we are pushing every single day. I mean, it's part of the why I wake up in the morning is because I really enjoy driving landlords to market, which is way below what they think is comfortable and easy and gets everybody happy and gets the return and they can take private jets to the masters and bring brokers and do parties and like all this all this is just a game to get brokers to agree to higher rents. And every day we wake up, we're pushing them in the other direction. I think that John is is also pushing the market down and that he has a uh, politer, more uh, different way of saying it than we are. I think John's view of reaching price discovery is that he's getting a great a great deal in the in today's market and that he's not actually changing the market because John is 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 basically saying that. The market should be efficient. And these prices that we're driving these landlords down to is the market discovered price. So I, I think there's actually a, a lot more, uh, you know, in common here between Brian and John than maybe meets the eye. I know John's getting great deals for his clients because we talk about it all the time. And, you know, he does an excellent job at, you know, what he does. But I think he just sees it as he's not pushing the market down. He's just discovering where the market is, and it happens to be way down. I think you're both experts at what you do. That was a hilarious trade of opinions, but ultimately what our job is to do is to get the best possible deal, mind you, without absolutely scorching the earth. Because remember, these two parties, this landlord and this tenant, have to live together, in some cases for 10 years or more. And so it is not in anyone's best interest to scorch the earth and create this environment where the two hate each other the day they join forces and sign a lease. Um, there's a way to do it tactfully and respectfully where we get our clients the best possible deal. 
in some cases we got Brian over here pushing it down and in other cases we have Jarvis you know discovering pricing um, but again we do so to make sure that after that lease is signed and both emerge from what you might call the battle there it's a harmonious way and they set off on a foot on a new a new 10-year term we're saying the same thing it's just semantics you're, you're, you're saying you're pushing the landlords i'm saying that we're not pushing the market down like the, the market is the market there's buy there's sell there's demand there's supply and and what you're describing is taking the landlords where they don't want to go which is exactly what we do through our price discovery um but we're not creating the market out we're not rooting for a recession we're not you know we're not pushing the market down. I mean, John, in academia, okay, right. There's a perfectly fluid market that operates fundamentally perfect where supply and demand create pricing and the pricing is the pricing. Yeah, that's called the stock market effectively, right? And even that isn't perfect where there's arbitrage in, in certain values and people can make money on spreads that others don't see. But the... The real estate market is not. It's illiquid. Information isn't, isn't readily available. Um, deals are structured in very unique ways, deal to deal that can, uh, influence what is, what is presented in the marketplace and effectively what the deal that's, that's negotiated is totally different. So it's, it's hard to say we're not, we're not driving, in my mind, not driving that process to some place because a lot of cases you don't know. There's a lot of brokers that their goal, and I will tell you this, and it is nothing anyone takes from this podcast from me today. This other than this point, I'll have I'll have won something because there's a lot of brokers in the marketplace. Their sole goal is to make the landlord and the tenant both feel like they gave up something, but neither of them neither of them actually give up anything because they're so conflicted that that the the number they come up with is is kind of in the middle even though one side could get more than the other right so uh and they just want to play that i want to have like that par i want to play switzerland all day long and i just want to get deals done and because their firm themselves represent both sides and you always end up right in the middle and that's not to me that's not that's not pushing the market that's not either for your landlord client or your tenant client depending upon who you represent but they just want to get deals done and they want everyone to kind of feel good, but no one's really cap, cap um, capturing the value that can be created on either side. And th- that is, that is what I see in this marketplace every day. I would say 75% of the brokers play that game and they just kind of want to tread in the middle all day long. They just want to tread water right in the middle. Everyone, everyone feels happy leaving it, but no one really won. And if you can break that apart and have representation that solely represents one part or the other, in a market where you have the opportunity to win, you will win. Okay. Well, a very lively last 10 minutes of episode 23. Let's wrap up there. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back with episode 24 soon.